This is the Veterinary Project Podcast, episode 137. Welcome to the show created by vets featuring absolutely no pets. This is the Veterinary Project Podcast, created by Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light. Our resident veterinarians have swapped out their stethoscopes in favor of microphones to bring you the Veterinary Project Podcast, a show focused on real conversations aimed to connect this amazing profession full of remarkable people. Through the sharing of collective stories and wisdom and connecting over the many unique challenges we face, we invite you to join our community of veterinary professionals leading intentional lives. And now, let's get started with another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Jonathan, Mike, I'm going to apologize in advance for this preamble our banter session because i asked jonathan what are we bantering about and i've already been on a, a 20 minute chat gpt wormhole with jonathan screen sharing and showing me all the chat gpts him and his wife have made so i think that's what we're gonna banter about so jonathan oh that's so funny and it's it's good because we were only supposed to be on for a half hour and now we're already at 42 minutes and we haven't even done the intro yet today <laughs> Yeah, we're finally, okay, we got to get going, so hit record here. But so far already today, Jonathan has shown me how, through the voice of Ryan Reynolds, he can create a completely balanced meal plan for his kids using ChatGPT with one of his pre-packaged. So, Jonathan, what's going on over there in your world? All right, so we've gone through a few phases in life, and this is another phase in life where there is technology that comes your way, not quite at the same level as NFTs. That's a whole 2022 discussion. This is almost 2024. So we have to be clear on what's possible here. Uh, the AI revolution and everything going on. I'm an advisor with Vetsy.ai. I readily say that. And there is components that are coming in through artificial intelligence that are making our lives better. There's the whole... Um, uh, perspective on are they making them better? Are they making it worse? I have no opinion on that. That's not for this discourse today. What I can say is it has been enjoyable for my wife and I to go down into the weeds and we're into the deep weeds in terms of all these different options around AI, what can be done and how they can help our life. So what I was showing Mike today was uh, chat GPT through OpenAI just introduced recently the opportunity to build your own GPTs. And what that means is to build basically your own AI bot. So we're having fun with this weekend and Candace built a bot called the Smirk and Serve Scheduler. So this is your own type of schedule. It's your ultimate meal planning and grocery genius. So for us, we've got a family, it's busy and we like to eat healthy. But then she put it in the format of Ryan Reynolds humor and we had a good time with it. And lo and behold to us, there are actually individuals on this planet that are using it that aren't us already. So we're quite shocked. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. I mean, and you, I can't remember what and, the term is, but when you look at adopters of technology, you're quite a bit further on the spectrum than me, right? Like I'm, I don't know if I'm a late adopter, but like I usually don't jump into stuff until it's fairly mainstream. And you're kind of the first person in line, you know, to, to try new technology things. To the positive and the negative. And I take this after my dad, because my dad, I think back in the day was even more aggressive. Uh, he would go and buy the latest 
you know, gizmo or whichever ahead of everybody else being able to even know what it is. And I think we're we're taking suit and taking that on. So yes, AI and that has has definitely captured our attention over the past couple of months. Adam Greenbaum, actually, I'll give a shout out to Adam, who is the CEO of Whisker Cloud. He has a great newsletter. Um, we've been back and forth called Bagel Bots. It's a once a day. It's called Bagel Bots. Subscribe to it. What it does is it provides for here's the latest and greatest and really short pieces on what's happening in AI because it is evolving so quickly. Also, there's links to probably four or five tools by the day of places that you can do. And then it talks about the ethics, the business behind it. And this is not long form newsletters. It literally takes you five minutes to go through on a daily basis. Well worth the read. So shout out to Adam um, that got me on to that one. Another one, AI tool report. Again, this is what we do in our side side time. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely, you know, kind of probably one of your hobbies is playing around in the technology land. Definitely. So that's what's happened in my life. What's happened in your life? Well, nothing, nothing as exciting as Ryan Reynolds creating our meal plan. So no, we're, we're boring house reno. Um, you know, very much not AI that's very real and dirty and dusty. Well, this is exciting though. Tell us, bring us up to date. What is happening in Mike's true home, his own Rosalie's, the family's home right now. Where is it at? Uh, we're pretty much all demoed and we're starting to rebuild. I'm not, no one really wants to hear about that. The exciting thing is the basement. We've, we've kind of imagined what it's going to be like. And we're, we're going to be creating kind of the, the adult gym will be on one side, but the other half will be all for the kids. Right. So I want to put like the climbing wall and all the different play structures, um, you know, that they can just have fun for it's funny as you're going on about how AI and technology we're debating whether we have a TV even in the house. And we're finally like, yeah, we probably need at least one just for like, you know, if there's something on that we have to watch, I guess. But it's funny, our household, like inside of it, obviously we have cell phones and that, but we really try to have the kids be more, more engaged. But I mean, that's the the world we live in. I don't want them to get left behind either. You know, yeah, there's that, that balance. Yeah. So I don't know. They're all, they're so young though, right now that, you can tell Riley has too much screen time and she's a bit of a monster. So we, we got to watch that. So we brought our, we brought our first video game into the household, which was the Nintendo Wii about two months ago. And it's interesting because our kids are a little bit older and Jack will go on a kick where he'll enjoy it for a half hour, hour, but he's actually way more entertained by getting outside playing hockey and going, yes, we may have done something well in life to hold this back. And, trying my hardest not to do playstation or xbox or any of those things again debate in itself is that good for the kid bad for the kid i'm not saying one way or another i'm just saying our personal choices right who knows i know that's a there's a, a million ways to do it and i guess segues us well into our conversation today um obviously right, it does. dr emily singler with us um she's the the author of pregnancy and postpartum considerations for the veterinary team I have to be honest, when we were setting this up and I was, you know, we structure these, one of us is the lead, the other is the co-lead. So I was the lead on this one. And I was nervous, like not nervous to turn the camera on and record, but just nervous of like, okay, two dudes are going to talk to, you know, someone with tons of experience about pregnancy and postpartum. And I was like, how is this going to go? But we seem to always (laughs) do that. We throw ourselves in those situations. I think it's good overall. You know, have the conversation, see where it goes. But sometimes it's nerve wracking. 
dude, I don't know, dude, I don't know another space in veterinary medicine where this is being discussed, let alone by two dudes. So if there's anybody that can tackle it, it is us. And again, providing Emily the space to be able to share her experiences, well, well worthwhile, as well as then being able to share what can be done in vet med going forward and where it is in current state. Because same thing, going on to the recording where the heck were we going with this conversation? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it went well. Well, I mean, the, the thing I like, and part of the reason we do the podcast is it, it allows us to be curious and be like, help us learn. I mean, I have the perspective of having two children as, you know, a co-parent. I'm not the birthing parent, but I got to witness some stuff. And like you said, we're all trying to figure it out and, and do our best. So um, the other thing I will say is, and Emily, if you're listening to this, I can totally vouch for it. In Jonathan's screen sharing, we also jumped over to Amazon because we were checking out your website and I watched him order your book live. So he has ordered your book and now I'm going to call him out and say, he's also going to leave you a review. And for anyone listening to this episode, go buy oh. Emily's book and leave her a review. She doesn't say it in this in the episode, but it is the best thing you can do for supporting another veterinarian that has poured their heart into bringing such a valuable resource. I had an early copy of the book, so I've had the the chance to go through it. It's very deep. It's very detailed. There's, there's so much information in it. So buy the book and leave her a review. Anything you want to add, Jonathan, before I officially read the bio and introduce Emily and we get on with this? I think something that stood out to me, and I have not read the book yet, um, but we have team members, obviously, that in this space um, are either pregnant now or are moving through, um, you know, their own birth or et cetera process. Um, I was surprised in terms of when you and her were talking about how academic and how research driven the book was in order to provide the latest and greatest information. Even since that conversation, I've had another conversation with one of my clinic leaders about what do we need to do in our own space to understand this dynamic of pregnancy in the veterinary space, because it is a little bit of a hole right now. We do have our own legislation and depending on the province and country, but in the overall, that's up to the employer to grab onto on their own. And I'm really excited to get into this book and know where we can help. And as she said herself, even again, we're, we're not making any money or doing anything. This is, this is our own view. Um, it's, it's one of those books I think that we're going to be able to pick up and then jump right into the x-ray section, jump into the hazard section. As a veterinary owner, I need that. So I'm looking forward to getting it. Yeah, I think I say this in the recording is I can see this sitting on the shelves of a lot of practice managers like in vet clinics as a quick guide where it's like, uh, I'm kind of uncertain about, you know, isoflurane or anesthetic or whatever, like bang, grab it, you know, get some good information. So anywho, that's it. without any further ado, Dr. Emily Singler is a 2001 graduate of Penn State University and a 2005 graduate of University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. She has navigated five pregnancies while working in veterinary clinical practice and has been a working mom throughout the majority of her tenure as a veterinarian. Her career in veterinary medicine has included experience in shelter medicine, private practice, and as a relief veterinarian. She currently works as a veterinary writer, consultant, and mentor, and enjoys writing for both pet owners and veterinary professionals. Her writing interests include public health, preventive medicine, the human-animal bond, and life as a working mom. She is the author of Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team, 
which is being published by CRC Press in November 2023. At the time this goes live, this book is now available. Um, she has spoken both virtually and in person on working in the veterinary medicine throughout pregnancy and beyond with an emphasis on navigating workplace hazards, workplace protections against discrimination, planning parental leave and returning to work. She is currently working towards becoming a retained certified parental leave coach. Emily is a mom of four kids, two dogs and one cat. She enjoys spending time with her husband and kids and she loves horseback riding and all things llama and alpaca. She is learning to embrace the chaos of having a big family and find solace in connecting with others and eating chocolate. Everyone loves chocolate. So I give you Dr. Emily Singler, go buy the book, leave her a review. All right, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to dive into your book. I mean, we've been, um, we connected first on a on an author's book panel, I believe it was. And I mean, that was at the start of the year and it reached out and was like, let me know as, as this book is landing, we'd love to have you on. So congratulations. I think as we're recording this, your book officially launches the next day. So by the time this airs, yes. this book is out in the world. So congrats. Yes. Yes. My baby's out there or will be out there by the time everyone hears this. So very, very excited. You should be. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to dive right into the book. I was going through it and I have to say, I was like, wow, there, there is so much here. In some ways, I was like, this is like a textbook. Like, this is like the go-to resource if you need to know anything about pregnancy and postpartum in the veterinary world. Like, I can't believe how many different topics there was that I hadn't even thought of. Yeah. Um, when I was, and it was, it was published by an academic press who normally does publish textbooks. Um, and so when I was kind of going through and working on it and sending kind of sample chapters out for review, you know, there was some feedback to maybe kind of make it more of this rigorous, you know, academic work that could then be studied in a course and taught and that kind of thing. Um, but I kind of tried to strike a balance between it being a reference, but also being just very approachable. The kind of the way I described it when I first started talking about it is I wanted you to be able to kind of sort of almost roll it up and stick it in your lab coat pocket if you wanted to and just kind of pull it out. And, you know, if you only want to read about radiation, just be like, okay, I'm going to read this chapter and this feels like digestible and it's not overwhelming and it's not so like pretentious that, you know, I can't get through it without wondering what it you know what everything means um and then i also wanted it to just be be very relatable because it's a stressful enough sort of season of life and and topic to approach anyway um that i, I wanted to make sure that it felt it felt comfortable uh, while still giving everyone the information so that was kind of the vision i had for it Nice. I, yeah, I, going through it, I would say I felt quite comfortable. Like I really liked the chapters all open with stories. So immediately I, you can mm -hmm. relate, you know, you can see that story unfolding. And then you end each chapter with just the take home points where 
you know, if you if you want to jump to like, okay, here's all the stuff you really need to know. And then in the middle, right, I was after especially since I had wrote written a book, the amount of research you have done is mind blowing to me. Like I was just like the number of references and tables and charts. I was like, it is very well. Yeah. researched. So there's a good balance. Yeah. There, I would say. Well, you kind of get into it. And it was one of those things when I started it, I didn't know it was going to be as, you know, as much as it is now, you just get into it and you're like, okay, well, whatever I had planned, that's not enough because now I see this needs to be explained. This needs to be researched. We need to find out like, what are we, what am I really going to tell people about radiation, about anesthesia, about talking to your boss? You think maybe that's the, I, I at one point thought maybe it would be a website, maybe it would be a pamphlet. And then as I started researching it, I, that, that was where it, it just turned into a book because that's just what it had to be to, to include everything that I felt like needed to go in there. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it begs the question as we kind of kick off the discussion, why write this book, right? Like what, what drew you or compelled you to put in the work? Cause it's a lot of work to bring this to life. Yeah. It was just this nagging feeling that I had over the years. So, and I, I've shared this story a, a few times previously, but um, I think it's just important to share. Um, so I uh, found out I was pregnant with my first child about three months after I graduated from vet school. So I was working my first job and uh, always wanted to be a mom and have kids. But, you know, when it happened, I found myself just completely unprepared, um, as as many first-time parents do. And, um, you know, didn't know what I should be doing, what was okay to to do while I was working around all these potential workplace hazards, you know, would I be fired for getting pregnant and needing to go on maternity leave before I, you know, maybe just barely worked a year um, in, in practice? You know, what, what would that even look like? How am I going to go back to work when I have a baby, all this stuff. And I just found that there was no one who could really answer those questions um, for me. And there wasn't even really a place I could go to find that. Um, and so early on in my career, I, you know, I was very worried about not letting my pregnancy and my having a child, you know, inconvenience anybody else. Um, you know, I wanted to be that eager young professional who never let anybody down, who was just kind of always there. Um, and I didn't really think a lot about what I needed and what I deserved and um, and whether I was, you know, really getting the support and the resources that I needed. But then as time went on, I, I really felt like I wished I could have more support. I wish I could have those resources. I wish I could find the answers to my questions because I was going around asking all kinds of people questions, you know, how safe are dental, you know, radiographs? How safe is it to be standing right next to the um, to the beam. Um, how safe is it to be in the OR um, every day doing spay neuter when you're pregnant, you know, and potentially having some isofluorine exposure? And I just got these answers that made it clear that nobody, nobody really knew, um, or no one, even if they gave me an answer, they couldn't back it up with any actual concrete information. So eventually, after you know, kind of having 
uh, four kids uh, while working in, in clinical practice, I just decided this is not out here. So I'm, I'm just going to create it. And like I said, even when I first had that idea, I didn't know that it was going to be, um, you know, the book that it is. But um, once I started doing it, I just thought I have to I have to do it right. I have to I have to make it something I'll really be proud of. And then this is what it grew into. Ah, good for you. And you could see that as a common theme. You know, you do introduce uh, and you have guests share some of their stories. And I noticed that jumping out a lot where some event would happen and they would approach their medical care provider. And the answer would be some version of, well, I don't know, like you, you tell me what antibiotic we should use. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea. And I was like, yeah, that was me. That was me. My, my OB was like, "Ah, which antibiotic do you want? Yeah. So I have to ask, (laughs) like, aren't you my doctor? Yeah. What, what shocked you the most or maybe jumped out the most you know, we you have an expectation, and then you start actually doing the research and getting some facts. Was there anything that jumped out that was like, wow, like I didn't expect that, or that was shocking? Well, I, in terms of kind of the first half of the book, which is all really like workplace hazards, um, I was surprised um, that with proper precautions, radiation exposure is actually a lower risk um, activity than I had thought before I started doing the research. And I'm not saying, you know, all all pregnant people just go out there and, you know, shoot tons of x-rays. But um, I I think just from my research with all of the... um, the advances in technology with uh, radiographic, you know, equipment, and um, what we know about how to stay safe, um, that risk can be very low if you do end up having some exposure. Um, same with anesthesia; there are there are definitely ways to work safely around anesthesia um, during pregnancy. So those things were were reassuring. Um, and surprising to me. Um, I think one of the other big things that I sort of knew, but it was still very depressing to, to have confirmed in all the research is just how poorly the United States does parental leave um, and how that impacts men, women, mothers, fathers, just, just all parents um, when they're, when they're trying to, grow their families and um, still still continue working. Um, it just, it, it has so many effects, both, you know, physical and mental that um, we just, we don't seem to be able to figure out a solution for. And I know not, you know, other countries that do a better job, I'm sure they could still come up with a list of things that they would like to be better um, or different, but we were still... It's disappointing. Yeah. I know before we hit record here, we the three of us were kind of kicking that around a bit. And it is shocking. You know, I'm up in Canada for our listeners that maybe don't know. And me and my wife, uh, we had a our, our one-year-old. So we're about a year removed from our last child. And then I remember chatting with people, you know, and okay, I, I was it at the six-week mark or like the, the mat leave in the United States is very short. And it was like, this is- It can physically- be, yeah physically 
taxing, you know, on Rosalie, that's my wife, like giving birth and nursing and all that. And now you're going to go back and do, or be expected to do such a demanding job. I was like, wow, like it, it, it seems off, but I don't, I don't know what this, what the fix is. There, yeah, and, and, and I'll so jump many... in. Go ahead. I'll Go jump ahead. into that for a second. Having worked in both the States and Canada, uh, if there's an area where I was, unfortunately for, for yourself, Emily, where I was proud of Canada is just looking at what the, the forward looking needs are for women coming out of, you know, any type of pregnancy and the ability time to both, both uh, recuperate physically. And then the mental needs that are associated with those, with, with children that are just coming into the world. How do you do that in a six week time frame? I remember working with some clinics down in Seattle area where you had, um, maternity wards or rooms that were set up for moms to be able to work and nurse at the same time, only nine weeks after. And I went, how is this even possible? Um, and it's definitely not that the Canadian system is foolproof or, or amazing, but there's, there's inroads that can still definitely be made. And that's related to both. I think the, the, the woman and the man that's involved. Yeah. If a woman and a man are involved in this. Yeah. Cause there's so many yes. different permutations yeah. that can now take place. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I really feel strongly that in order for parental leave to be better for, you know, birthing mothers, it has to be better for everybody else too. Um, because there ends up being a lot more stigma around birthing mothers taking their leave when they're entitled to it. If fathers and other non-birthing parents don't have any because then that really singles the birthing mothers out as the ones who are going to need more time off work as the ones who are expected to just have all of the the load at home while the other parent goes back to work um, and it just creates this inequity very very early in the life of the child and then that newly you know the life of that new family that can have long lasting implications for um, you know, the gender uh, wage gap, um, the motherhood penalty, which involves, you know, wage gap, but also all the unpaid leave, um, the expectation that the mother is always the one who's going to be with the child when the child is sick, you know, all these sort of unequal expectations about how different parents in the household um, are expected to care for the child and what the expectation is in terms of their responsibilities at work. So, um, kind of starting from the get-go with um, leveling that playing field for everyone, I think is is so important. And I think most dads would probably like to feel like it's okay for them to to take more leave and to bond with their families, you know, if that were socially socially acceptable and their employer allowed it. Um, I would imagine that would be the case. I don't know what you two think. I'm pretty fortunate. Um, Rosalie and I are both self-employed. So, I mean, one of the cons is we we didn't have parent, paid parental leave of any sort for right. either of us. Right. That was also our own choosing. We could have opted in, you know, years ago and started paying into it and then collecting. But anyway, so where I'm fortunate is I got to spend a lot of time with my infant children. Um, and it is awesome. You know, and I look back and that that time will never will never get to have it again, right? Like they they only grow up once, and it's been it's been a blessing, you know. And I know with Riley was right during COVID, and so the world kind of shut down. And I was like, this is awesome! Like I just 
yeah. we, we spent so much time with our newborn. You guys so, are all home together. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm the third party in here. And I went back to work, I think, after our second was born after about five days off, which I thought was pretty good. I'm that, again, more in the past traditional where it was back to work. It was, hey, there's some things that need to be looked after and, um, you know, able to spend more time where I could. So I actually, I don't feel regret to having to go back to work at that point. Different circumstances, different times. So it's kind of nice to see the three of us in yeah, three different uh, scenarios here. Yeah, and I think that was the first for our first as well too. Even though I did have parental leave and could have taken it at that point in Canada, um, chose not to. Yeah, I will just say, you know, as the one who gave birth in my family that it, because my husband, while well, I was in, I had kids in two different marriages, um, but, you know, with my first two kids, I think it was like two or three days off that he got. Um, and with my second two, maybe he got a week off my husband when I had the baby. Um, and then the, the no parent, no paternity leave. Um, but he was able to save up vacation so that right when I went back to work, you know, I worked three days a week. And so he would take those three days off. So to be with the baby just for like a couple weeks, that was all the leave that he had left um, just to kind of have his bonding time at home with um, each of our sons and also kind of push back the daycare start date just a little bit. But I got to tell you, I would have really appreciated if he could have had more time home when I was home because I really needed that support. You know, I really needed that. I was still healing um, physically. I was not getting any sleep. I was breastfeeding and pumping and washing bottles and all that stuff around the clock. I was, you know, dealing with a baby that was sometimes colicky. I was dealing with my own postpartum mental health struggles. Um, and, you know, there was no one else in the house really to help me because we didn't have family close by. So, I think that's the other thing we need to think about is, you know, that non-birthing parent, the partner, um, you know, may not always feel like they necessarily need it for themselves. And maybe they feel guilty or uncomfortable about taking that much time away from work. Um, but it can be such a game changer uh, in a lot of cases for that other parent, whether they've given birth or not. There's, it's still just such a complete and utter change in their life. Um and um, just total disruption of their schedule, of the way they do everything. Um, and it can be very jarring some of the time. So um, I think that's another reason to, to really think more about um, the, the ability and the opportunity for the other parent to kind of be there for, for more of that. Um, so no, it's not always possible, but it's still my dream and my vision that that, that will that will continue to change. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I want to kind of go a little deeper there. Um, as the non-birthing parent, you know, this is just my perspective of it is like, you know, we're also scared and anxious and have no clue what we're doing, you know, especially on the first one. What advice would you give, you know, to the, to the non-birthing partners listening? Cause I know when we say support, 
and I totally agree. We're there to support in however we can, but you know, sitting there deer in the headlights, what specifically would like moves the needle the most? Uh, I think it'll be, you know, a little bit different for every, every family, but just kind of taking, taking initiative to say, you know, don't worry, I got this, you know, look around, see what the needs are. Um, I think I, I don't want to generalize, you know, sometimes there can be a sense of, well, I need you to tell me what you want me to do. Um, you know, just kind of assessing the situation, assessing, okay, you look like you're tired. You look like you've been holding the baby for, you know, the past four hours. Like I'm, I'm going to take over or you're good. You've got the baby. You need to keep feeding them or, or whatever the case may be. I'm going to go get the dishes done or I'm going to go order some food. Um, you know, something like that. It doesn't always have to be kind of in a secondary supporting role, but maybe, you know, taking a little more initiative and saying, okay, I would like to have this time. And maybe the other parent might um, be a little resistant to the idea at first, but Hey, let me, let me do this. Let me step up. Let me have this time. Go take a nap, skip this feeding. There's a bottle. I don't worry. I got this. Um, and just kind of finding ways to, and of course, you know, everyone's going to do things differently. And sometimes it's hard, you know, initially it was hard for me to just be like, oh, well, that's not how I do that. And, and you know, I, as a birthing parent, also have to learn to step back and be like, you're totally entitled to, to do these things as an equal parent. So I need to kind of step back and let you do that. However, it is you figured that out and however it is that you want to do it. Um, because if I want to be supported, I have to let the other person support me. Um, so yeah, I think it'll look different for everyone, but just kind of feeling that sense of, um, of confidence to, to kind of look and see where the need is and, and create your own traditions, create your own ways of, of, of bonding with your, with your child. Yeah. Yeah, I like that piece on like also allowing them to support it because it can be you know, very difficult. But I didn't. Yeah, I talk about that briefly in the book, you know, about like not micromanaging your partner, um, which I think is very important. And I think I need to remind myself of that, you know, too. Like I ask you to do something. I can't tell you exactly how I want you to do it. I just need to like let you do it. <laughs> yeah, I want to. Uh, shift gears a little bit. There was one one theme in the book. I, I guess one one whole chapter that I I really wanted to jump into um, was announcing pregnancy at work. And what I what I really liked about that chapter was you have you know kind of experimented with that in your own life through multiple pregnancies, and I think you approached it slightly different, you know, w- with each child. So I'd like you to share your story, and then. Um, I, again, I understand it's going to be very individual. So everyone's going to come to their own conclusion. I was reflecting on that as a veterinarian in clinic. And there was times that I can think of where, you know, I was working with someone that was pregnant, but I didn't know at, at that time. So I couldn't make any adjustments. Right. But it all seems to boil down to communication. You know, like you said, with radiation, I was also shocked at how much it can be mitigated and how you know safe it can be with proper precautions and safety equipment but first there has to be awareness that okay this is 
you know, this is what we're dealing with here so that the, those tools can be put in place. So I'd love to right. hear kind of your story on yeah. announcing it at work. Yeah. So with my first pregnancy, again, I I felt very unsure of what I was doing kind of then and, and a, a, a big sense of, I don't know if shame is the right word, but just kind of fear that I would be judged or looked down upon that I was this new grad and here I was pregnant and I was somehow going to be this huge inconvenience to everyone around me. So um, the first, my first pregnancy, I really didn't want anybody to know. Um, I told, and I, and in fact, I had a, an accidental uh, unshielded x-ray exposure before anybody knew. Um, and that was what really prompted me to start telling a few people, um, because I figured, okay, this is, <laughs> this is not good. Like people need to know, people need to know that I'm pregnant. People need to, you know, help me stay a little bit safer. Um, and so I told, um, um I was working at a, at like a shelter at the time. So I, I told, uh, the manager and some of the technicians. And I, I think everyone that just kind of gradually found out from there, but I, it, it was almost apologetic, you know, don't worry. I'm, I'm still going to come back. I'm not leaving. I'm still going to do a good job. I'm still, you know, I, I was almost embarrassed. Um, and that feeling kind of persisted throughout that pregnancy. So I didn't really want anyone to ask me questions. I didn't really want to talk about it. And looking back, I just feel like I made things so much more uncomfortable than they needed to be, you know, because I was very kind of protective and kind of wanted to keep everybody away from that. Um, so I, I don't really, I, I would not do it that way again. Um, but then with my next pregnancy, I was in a, I was in a private practice and I think I just told my boss individually, I I want to say I probably waited until close to the end of my first trimester because that was just always considered to be, you know, the norm, you know, you, you wait, you just wait, you don't tell anybody before then. And so I don't remember exactly, but I would probably just kind of, you know, whenever we had a, a case that needed radiographs or something like that, I would just kind of magically disappear and be like, Oh, I have to go to the bathroom or something. You guys take care of it, you know, and kind of hope that no one would notice because People start putting things together very quickly. You start acting differently. You start going into the bathroom more. You start looking like you don't want to eat. You're the slightest bit sick. Oh, she must be pregnant. And I'm not exaggerating. You know, people do that all the time. And I, I still, I really didn't want anyone to, to speculate or gossip about me. And so, um, and I think I told a few people. And after a while I was like, you tell everybody else. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to tell people. I don't want to say it. It feels weird to me. Um, and then when I was pregnant again, it, several years had passed and I still think I waited and kind of told a small group of people and said, no, but don't, don't tell anybody else. I told my boss and maybe a manager and it's like, but please don't say, I don't want anybody else to know. Um, and then kind of gradually, let other people know. And there was one pregnancy where I told a small group of techs because I thought, okay, they'll keep me safe. They'll make sure that I don't have anything to do with radiation. They'll help me, you know, with anesthesia and that kind of stuff. And I said, please just, I don't want anybody else to know, but they told everybody. Um, 
And that was very, that was very upsetting to me. I don't know why, but it was when someone told me, I told someone I was pregnant and he's like, yeah, I already know. Um, that just really hurt my feelings that people were talking about me. And I said, well, how did you find out? And they said, well, so-and-so was complaining about how your maternity leave was going to affect the tech schedule. And I don't know, that just, I really didn't like that, that the, and people are going to talk, but for some reason I really didn't like that. So during my last pregnancy, um, it was during COVID and I thought, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this whole secrecy thing. The the, just the staff in general at the clinic and the management were not really enforcing the wearing of masks or social distancing or washing of hands or anything. And I just felt very uncomfortable with just the safety aspect related to COVID. So we had our morning meetings uh, every morning with everybody who was in the hospital. And I just said it in the morning meeting. Like I hadn't told anybody. I hadn't told a manager or anybody. I just said it to everybody all at the same time. Because I thought this way, I don't have to hide it from anybody. Nobody will really have anything to say about it. And I just said, I need you to wear your masks when you're around me. Um, And we need to social distance. And I think there was just like silence after that. And that was a really scary thing for me to do because I did it very early. I'm not even sure if, I don't think I'd even been to the doctor yet. I hadn't even gotten like a confirmation ultrasound. But I felt so good after I did that because it was just out there. And I didn't need to feel bad about it. I didn't need to feel um, secretive or um, kind of protective about it. And and people did start taking that seriously. Um, so that that was probably my favorite. It was it was the scariest way, I think, for me to do it. But sort of ripping that bandaid off and not kind of staying in that place of kind of anticipatory anxiety for very long, um, I think worked out the best. And and to your point, Michael, I got the the protection and the support that I needed much sooner. Um, and I do make that point in in my book and in some of the other social media posts I've made that, that we can't expect to have protections, even protections that are guaranteed under the law. We can't expect to have them if the people who are charged with protecting us don't know um, that we have that need. So I, I think that is a very important point to make. I mean, ultimately, it's up to the individual to decide when they want to share that. Um, but we can't expect to have, you know, our safety protected. We can't even expect to have our job protected if um, if our management, our employer doesn't doesn't know. So if we're, you know, coming in late all the time because we're not feeling well or because we have a doctor's appointment or something like that, and nobody knows that that that's the reason why, um, that could just be interpreted as, you know, poor workplace behavior and and judged as such and certainly you can't expect to have um you know responsibility for certain tasks to be taken away from you if there's no understanding of you know why why that needs to be the case or even that there is a need um 
So I feel very strongly that announcing early in the workplace is, is a good thing. Um, I know it may not be right for everyone because there is still, unfortunately, a lot of concern about discrimination. And I, and I don't think that that's made up. I think it's real. And I think it, it does still happen. Most, most people who engage in it won't admit that that's what they're doing, but, but it definitely happens. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing those stories. That, that was the main reason I wanted to ask it is there's going to be listeners, you know, that are maybe planning, planning to have kids or, or whatnot and getting to hear it from you that has had these experiences is, is very valuable. On the, so on the flip side of that, you had mentioned, you know, with your third pregnancy, one of the techs complaining about how that may affect their schedule and then mentioning discrimination here. Let's dive into that. And this is this is an interesting topic. And to be honest, I don't even know how to frame the questions. Um, you know, I, I said a hypothetical example before we hit record of let, let's pretend, you know, the three of us are veterinarians working at a clinic and we share the on-call schedule. And then all of a sudden now we're out with one of us is out on parental leave. So now the on-call and we've chosen we're not doing on-call. Now we're down to two, right? And that shifts things in the clinic. And as you mentioned, you you can have people complaining, gossiping, discrimination. Where do we take that? Like, I don't imagine there's anything we can discuss where we've just fixed it for the veterinary profession, but how can we make it better and or do better? And yeah, if I and, may and ask, I, and can I jump in for a second? Sure. Just sure. even even a little bit for the what are examples of that? Because in the pre-recording, what what are examples of 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 those individual pieces that lead to com, uh, complaints, harassment, um, or as you mentioned earlier, microaggressions? What are some examples that that people need to be aware of? So I can share from my perspective that I personally. Um, when, when my, I, I got divorced after I had my first two kids. And so for a while I was a single parent and I was responsible for picking them both up from school every day. And my shift went until 6 PM and my kids went to, they were in elementary school and they went to kind of an after school program at the school and they had to be picked up by 6 PM. No exceptions. And so I asked my boss, I, I told my boss, I mean, he knew what I was going through. And I, I said, you know, I really, I don't have anybody else to pick them up right now. Like I need to be able to pick them up every day that I work. And I think I, at, at some points I was able to arrange for a friend to help like one day a week. And at one point I even paid someone like a teenager to do it some of the time, but there were still times where I needed to be able to do it. And so it meant I had to leave work early. Um, and I received a comment from another veterinarian who was older than me and had raised his own children that, um, because my boss told me that whenever he was there, he was fine with me just leaving. But if I was working with the other doctors that I just needed to discuss it with them before I left. And so it created the scenario where every single day I had this anxiety at the end of the day, like, are they going to be mad at me? Um, and so I went to this doctor that, that day and I said, you know, I'm, is, are you okay if I leave? And every once in a while he would make these comments like, yeah, I wish I had a reason to leave early. I wish I had a kid to go pick up so I could go home. 
and it wasn't said behind my back. It was said, you know, to my face. Um, and I can remember there being sort of talk behind the back of one of the receptionists who also had to go pick up her child um, about how unfair it was that she never closed and that the other people had to close every day and she always left at five and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I personally have never worked an on-call um, schedule, but, you know, certainly I can imagine cases where where that would be something that an individual who's either pregnant or um, certainly when they're on maternity leave, they're not going to be available for that. Um would not be able to participate that in that. And it is also a big problem in both the human medicine world and in veterinary medicine uh, in residencies um, where the, the hours and the schedules are just extremely demanding. Um, and when one uh, member of that resident cohort has to go on maternity leave, it's been documented that there is a lot of resentment among the other members of that cohort who are often just forced to pick up all that extra work for, you know, no additional pay. Um, and so that just creates this huge, you know, stressful scenario for the person who's going on leave and for everybody else. Um, and so when I, I, and I do talk about this in, in my book, um, at least in the, on the human side of things, there's been more discussion about, um, you know, asking for volunteers to cover that time and then paying them extra, um, or just bringing in other paid people to, to cover that leave. Um, and, and I think, you know, the answer will be different in every scenario, but it's more about just kind of making everybody in the situation feel like their needs and their time and their, um, you know, whatever their wants are outside of work are, are important too. You know, we don't, we don't want to get into a scenario where we say the only needs that matter here are those of the working parent. You know, everybody else has a life, even if they don't have a baby to go home to, um, even if they've chosen not to have kids, they still have that, you know, they still have the right to want to have a good quality of life, to not always be at work, to not have to do extra unpaid work. And I think that's a very reasonable concern for them to raise. So I think, you know, then the question becomes, okay, how can we cover this need um, in a way that feels comfortable to everybody while still acknowledging that this parent just has to be able to you know, have whatever accommodations they need, either from, you know, a health and a safety and a healing standpoint, um, or, you know, because they have to meet their needs, the needs of their children as a parent. So whether that's, you know, paid relief coverage um, for, for some of that time, or maybe going back and talking to, you know, all the staff is, you know, is this, is this something we need to uh, reorganize or readjust with everyone's input. Um, I, I think if we can, if it can be a scenario where everyone feels like they have a voice, um, there's going to be a lot less inequity, a lot less resentment, hopefully. And it'll be easier to kind of find a solution. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but. 
No, that makes sense. I think that's an important part of the process. Jonathan, anything to add? I know you've had various management roles in your career, so likely you've you've had these scenarios. I nod my head and no, but then I think one of the comments that you made early in our discussion is about trying not to inconvenience anyone else. And how do we get around that? Because that's a real feeling. And and how do you move past that knowing that there is that risk of confidence that if I share, um, even when after I share that there are these microaggressions and other even more more forceful pieces that come against it that it's a it's more of a comment versus a question um as you've grown within this book are there facts that have come to light specifically within veterinary medicine that have made you either more uh confident in the approach vet meds taking now less confident or still neutral to it all uh i think it's a it's a combination of things so um in terms of the the piece about, you know, how do I stop feeling like just me living my life is an inconvenience to everybody else? I think a lot of that is just kind of living through the experiences and experiencing more understanding and sort of um, acceptance and support and help and all those things that than I expected. You know, you kind of think, well, everyone's going to be mad at me. Everyone's going to hate me for for this. And then finding out, you know, no, that's not the case. They they actually understand. Um, but, you know, I think so some of that's just kind of learning and, and growing and, and maturing over time and kind of having those life experiences. Um, I, I do think there has been a shift, though, just even from when I graduated from vet school in 2005 um, until now, because I, I I think we have a long way to go. But I think there is, you know, more people are talking about, you know, just the, the concept that, no, we don't have to want to be at work all of the time. We don't have to give up all of our lives and all of our energy and our money and our sanity and everything to this profession like we it's okay that we want to have other aspects of our lives that have nothing to do with veterinary medicine and in fact that's good um, because I don't feel like that was the message that I got when I was in school and when I you know had just graduated it was like don't complain and just suck it up and just kind of do it and if you don't like this then you're in the wrong field um, kind of thing so I'm very um, happy and reassured to hear more people talking about that, to hear talk about quality of life, because that was something that never even occurred to me um, when I was first graduated and, and having my first baby. I thought, okay, well, I'm just the one who's supposed to suffer so that, you know, I can just meet everybody else's expectations. But now I'm grateful for all the people who are out there talking about the fact that no, that's not a realistic expectation. And that's why so many people are burning out and leaving the field and, and unhappy um, is because we're trying to just give everything and not really expect any, you know, it, we're, we were at least in the past being told that it wasn't reasonable to <laughs> expect to want to have a good, um, you know, quality of life. So I, I'm very encouraged by that. I, I still think there's there's room for that to improve more though. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I mean, it is encouraging. Um, I was, I was sm smirking a little bit when we think of 2005, 2008, Jonathan's 2009, 
you know, we're all coming up on 15, 20 year reunions. Um, so, but it's nice to see a lot has changed in that time, you know, and there'll be, there'll be lots to come, but thank you so much. I mean, congratulations. It's, I know what, what a lift it is to have this um, launched and what a valuable resource. Um, I guess it's that time we have to, we have to move into our, our impact round here with you, Emily, a series of, of short questions for you. First of which is, are you a cat or a dog person? Oh, I'm both. I guess if I had to pick one, I'm leaning more towards being a cat person these days. Okay, nice. True or false? I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a kid. True. How would your friends describe what you do for a living? Uh, trying to do too many things all at once and raise toddlers and teenagers at the same time and trying not to go crazy <laughs> what is, what is your favorite hobby horseback riding which i haven't done in years but i love it what in this world are you most grateful for my family excellent family Okay. Those of our listeners that want to reach out, uh, want to get a copy of the book, by the time this airs, it will be available. Where can they track the book down? Where can they track you down? Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways. Um, my website, I have links to purchase the book on um, several different platforms on my website. Um, so that's emilysinglervmd.com. Um, I have my um, Instagram, which is also Emily Singler VMD and LinkedIn, Emily Singler VMD. Um, and then, um, for those in veterinary medicine who are parents, if you, um, sign up through my website, you can get a link to join. I have a private Facebook group called the veterinary parents community. So we're going to be doing some Q and A's and just sharing other information there. It's not just, it's not it's different from the vet moms because it's not just for veterinarians. It's for all members of the team. It's for dads too, non-birthing parents, all everybody. Um, so we're working on growing that um, group. So again, you could just look for the link on my website and I share a lot of that stuff on Instagram as well. Well, thanks again, Emily. Thank you. You passed along a, thank a, you. a copy to me. So thanks for letting me dive into your book. Uh, very informative. As always on the podcast, uh, we leave the last word to you. What message do you want to leave for the veterinary community? I would just say that there are so many parents out there who are doing and want to keep doing uh, amazing things in our community and that we should um, continue to find ways to support them as best we can and to all the working parents out there. You're not alone, and I see you. Thank you for listening to the Veterinary Project Podcast. As a recap on behalf of our hosts, the Veterinary Project Podcast will be releasing new episodes every two weeks. So be sure to tune in as we bring you more conversations aimed at helping you enjoy a life well lived. If you enjoyed what you heard on the show and want to stay in the know, please like, love, and or subscribe to the podcast on the listening platform of your choosing as we're available on all the usual suspects. If you know of others who may benefit from these conversations, we'd love it if you shared the show with them. 
This helps us to grow our community and reach more and more veterinary professionals, just like you. Speaking of which, if you would like to get connected with more like-minded individuals who are joining us on this journey, please send us a message via Instagram at The Veterinary Project, and we'll invite you to be a part of our private Facebook group. General feedback, requests for information, or requests to be a guest on the show can also be sent via direct message to our Instagram at The Veterinary Project. Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light, thank you for listening to the show, and we'll catch you again in two weeks for another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.